The views, comments, stories, and opinions within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. Squawk Ident is an entertainment podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 7 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 4th of November, 2019, from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, Aviator Tony will discuss some of the annoyances that occur sometimes while trying to operate with the best intentions to provide an on-time operation. We will also cover how to motivate yourself to get out and get that workout in while you're on a layover. We'll also cover fatigue, FAA medicals, bird strikes, and stories from the flight line. All this and more on this episode of Squawk Ident. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Well, it's been quite an interesting week. I had a very nice trip last week that included a 34-hour layover in Maui. What a wonderful treat that was. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about it. As I've mentioned in some of the earlier episodes, sometimes during the week when you have to be at the airport at 7 in the morning, it just makes for a very long arduous commute. And I usually try to avoid these early trips, but this was such a nice overnight. It was actually one of my first choices in my uh, scheduling preferences for the month. So it was a 7.30 sign-in time at LAX. And as I've mentioned before, that does require quite a bit of leeway in terms of being prepared with all the traffic that I was going to anticipate. So I gave myself two and a half hours to get to the airport. And usually two and a half hours is about as bad it's going to get. And I used up all of that time. I didn't have much time to spare between the time I actually made it to the crew room to sign in to when my sign-in time was. I only had about 10 minutes to spare, which is way too tight for my comfort zone. Um, seems to be kind of a trend lately. The traffic is is usually taking a little longer than I'm planning for. So future trips, I'm going to have to just, you know, bite the bullet and give myself another 30 minutes to whatever I'm anticipating so that I don't uh, have so much pressure on me. But But yeah, so I show up to the airport and... Uh, met my captain for the first time, real decent guy and uh, very, very, very senior individual who had a lot of experience uh, doing the uh, oceanic crossing. So it, I knew it was going to potentially be a very smooth trip. So uh, last check of the weather, all the paperwork was finalized. We pushed off the gate and off we were going. So fast forward uh, about three hours into it. And as we're Cruising along, we uh, got a block altitude over the uh, ocean there on the Delta track. For those of you that are familiar, there are multiple oceanic tracks that you can be cleared on, kind of like a Victor Airway or a Jet Airway. And we were cleared on the Delta track. 
So we were able to get a block altitude between 34,000 and 36,000 feet, which just meant that in the event that, you know, the winds were favorable a little higher or we encountered any bumpiness uh, at 34,000, we had the option to climb up to any altitude in between 34 and 36,000 feet. And it was the uh, captain's leg to fly. We elected uh, that he would fly out and I'd fly back. And um, sure enough, we, we got a little bit of probably light chop about three hours into it. So we were able to climb up to 36,000 feet and it did smooth out. So it was a really nice crossing. However, about 30 minutes after we climbed up, uh, we started hearing chatter on the, the traffic frequency. Uh, it, commonly referred to as fingers. Uh, we call it uh, one, two, three, decimal four, five. We call it fingers. Um, and uh, so when you're crossing over uh, with one radio, you're monitoring guard and the other radio, you're monitoring this uh, advisory frequency. And uh, we can hear the other airlines talking about some convective activity that was about an hour prior to landing at any of the Hawaiian islands. And, you know, we had checked the weather and everything that we had in terms of radar and weather charts indicated that most of that convective activity was further north of our track. So we weren't really too concerned about it. However, with more and more people talking about deviating and getting uh, deviation clearances from San Francisco radio uh, and ATC, uh, we started to talk about what our plan of action was going to be. And then just then, uh, over the high frequency radio, San Francisco radio notified us that our dispatcher, uh, was giving us information about how this, uh, unforecasted convective activity has moved. And the way they did that is they gave us a series of, uh, geographic coordinates that I wrote down and we then plotted it on our uh, charts, our electronic flight bag, our Jeppesen charts. And we entered in all the uh, geographic coordinates and saw that it created uh, a couple shapes that looked like two rectangles uh, you know, offset from each other. And of course, the southern tip of this convective box, this segment, uh, was going to actually interfere with our uh, intended track. So we kind of coordinated with some of the other aircraft in the area and and kind of got what they were going to do. Uh, and they told us that they had planned to deviate 20 to 30 miles south of our track. And that's what they were going to request. And, you know, we're basically helping each other out by giving each other uh, ride reports and, you know, winds and things like that. So we can all kind of coordinate the best, you know, course of action. Because when you're over the water, really you really have each other and, and each other's um, pirates, you know, uh, or you have what air traffic control relays to you from ATC or your dispatcher uh, or San Francisco radio, that is. So we ended up getting a requesting like 20, uh, requesting 20 miles to the left, of course, uh, for weather. And they approved our request, as did some of the other carrier uh, f- flights that were around us in the area, beneath us, above us, around us. And uh, we ended up only having to deviate 
for about uh, 10 to 15 miles for about 40 miles to get around some weather. And rides never really got worse than moderate chop. I wouldn't even have called it light turbulence. It was, it's relatively light. My coffee didn't spill. So, you know, that's how I judge my turbulence scale. You know, it's real high tech stuff here. If my coffee uh, is smooth in the cup, doesn't spill, it's smooth. If a coffee starts to, you know, shake around in the cup, but it doesn't spill, then it's light chop. If it starts to have a spill here and there, like just a drop, moderate chop. And if it's coming out of the cup, that's light turbulence. And if the cup just falls over, because, I mean, it just, even if you're holding it, it all piles out. That's moderate turbulence, you know. So, and again, we know severe turbulence is loss of uh, ability to control the aircraft. So that I've never experienced that, thankfully. Hopefully I will never will. But so uh, just a little side note. Um, but so, yeah, so everything went pretty well. Uh, we got past the weather. Okay. And by the time we got to the other side of the weather on the west side of it, uh, they, they gave us the handoff over to, uh, HCF, a Hawaii uh, control facility. And, uh, then we were under radar contact and landed the aircraft in uh, Maui with no major issues. It was a beautiful, absolutely beautiful day. This time of year, Hawaii is just gorgeous. The temperature wasn't too hot in the 80s as it always is. Uh, a little windy, which uh, Maui can be, especially on the side of the island where we lay over. And uh, no, it was a good crew. Uh, once we got to the hotel, um, took a little bit of a nap because it was a relatively early morning flight and five and a half hours of flying time. And then, you know, another 30 minutes to the airport or to the hotel. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always a good idea to, to lay down for a little while because I did want to partake in going out with the crew and getting some dinner as we had planned to do. And sure enough, about 5 p.m. that evening, Hawaii time, which is three hours behind what Pacific time was, at least it was that night. Uh, we all got together downstairs and decided to go and check out a relatively popular place on that side of the island in Kihei, which is a place called Threes. Now, Threes Bar and Grill is just the absolute most chill eatery with a unique fusion flair of, uh, of Hawaiian and Polynesian Asian food. And, you know, Google rates it at 4.4 stars. I actually think that's a little low. I've been to threes a handful of times, and I'm yet to be disappointed. And I've always trying to grab a different type of meal every time I go. And so this time we all decided we were just going to order a bunch of uh, sushi and get some drinks and just kind of all hang out and chit-chat and talk. And, and, and it was a great time. Now, a little bit about threes. This place is uh, in Kihei, as I mentioned, and it's... A food network uh, location. I believe Guy Fieri did a show there not too long ago. Uh, it's also the winner of Maui's Best Lunch in 2019. It won an award for Maui's Best Healthy Restaurant in 2018, and it won Maui's Best New Restaurant in 2017. So if you get a chance to fly out, either if you're working or on vacation, or you just happen to be on that side of the island, check it out. It is absolutely a phenomenal place to hang out, have some drinks with some friends, and they have a pretty good happy hour too. I can attest to that. 
So we hung out for a while. Then afterwards, the night was still relatively young. Uh, it did get dark by around 5.30, 6 o'clock, which uh, wasn't quite used to getting dark that early. But, uh, but it was still early in the evening. And I had taken a nap, as I think most of the other crew members said they did too. So we decided afterwards that uh, we would go check out some live music. So we went over to Kaheli's Maui Local Dive Bar. Now this place is right next door in the Bermuda Triangle in Kihei. Uh, Maui's oldest dive bar as well. They had a great house band that covered uh, music from Stevie Nicks all the way to Billy Joel. And they have one of the longest happy hours in all of uh, Hawaii. So it's nights like this that really make it all kind of sink in, all worthwhile. It's these kind of overnights that are just so chill. You meet some people that maybe you've flown with before and really hadn't get a, you don't get a chance to, to talk with them. Um, or you're meeting them for the first time and you get to go out, you have a good time. You talk about your family life and, and what's going on and what your interests are. And it's a really good way to network to make friends and it really does bring the crew closer together now knowing that this was going to be a relatively long overnight i brought a snorkel uh, gear with me that i purchased a couple months back because the last time i did a an overnight in maui my uh, captain at the time and i got together for lunch and afterwards we're like well let's go rent some snorkel masks over at Snorkel Bob's and uh, go see if we can see some turtles. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And uh, so we rented these full face masks rather than the traditional, you know, goggles with the uh, snorkel. And they always kind of give a really cool discount to flight crew members because they know that we're there only for you know, 24 hours and whatnot. And we don't usually pack that kind of stuff. And, and so they, they want kind of a good word of mouth. Uh, so they give us a little bit of a, a break there, but so we did that and I had such a good time and I started thinking, man, these full face snorkels are really cool. And I never once had to, you know, blow water out of the tube or, or have that, you know, water get in my mouth at all. And I thought, man, I'm going to pick one of these up and sure, sure enough, Costco had uh, a really nice one. So I picked one up and I just throw it in my overnight bag with me whenever I go to a place where I know there's a, a good place to go snorkel around. Now Honolulu's got some really nice places as well, um, protected areas where the fish will come in, the waves aren't too big. So yeah, I did some snorkeling and hung out at the beach, got some laps in as well, and then I also got uh, my run in, but it wasn't until later in the evening. So this overnight sounds great, right? Well, it was. I, I really can't complain. The trip back, however, didn't go so smoothly. So our flight back to the mainland was the next day, obviously. And so we got to the airport and we were talking with the crew. Of course, this is a, a different uh, flight attendant crew. 
because the flight attendant crew that we flew in on the night before, uh, they took off going at a different time. Uh, we got to have, the captain and I got to have a, a much longer overnight. So when we met up with the cabin crew to head back to the mainland, we actually met at van time downstairs in the lobby for the first time. So, you know, we were talking on the van. Oh man, if we can get out of here just a couple of minutes, I have to schedule and if everything goes okay, we'll get in Los Angeles and there were some commuters that we had there. They're like, yeah, we're trying to make an earlier flight. So we'll do everything we can to get out on time to get you in LA, maybe even a couple minutes ahead of schedule. That way, you know, both our passengers get there a little bit ahead and, you know, our cabin crew can have a better chance to make their commuter flights. So we get to the airplane and did the walk around, all the pre-flight, you know, uh, checklists and paperwork was all taken care of. And now we're boarding the aircraft and I'm looking for the fuel amount. And the aircraft wasn't fueled. So I notify the captain. I'm like, hey, uh, captain, it doesn't look like there's fuel on this airplane. I'm going to go ahead and call operations. And I always try to give the captain a heads up, let him know what I'm going to do. Um, just so it's just kind of a courtesy thing. You know, I, they're the captain, they're in charge. And I always want to make sure that I, I don't feel like I'm stepping on their toes and I don't want them to feel that way either. So, so I told him, I say, yeah, I'm going to call ops and see what's going on just so they know. And he's like, oh, good idea. Good call. So I call operations and there's, oh, yeah, roger that. We'll, we'll give him a call. Okay, standard uh, response. Now they're all done boarding. It's 20 minutes prior to departure. Still no fuel truck. We had 10,000 pounds and we needed 45,000 pounds of fuel. So, and that takes a while. So I called operations back and said, hey, you know, we still haven't seen this fuel. Do you have an idea what's going on so I can pass it along? And they explained to me that, oh yeah, the other fuel truck, uh, it ran out of fuel. So they had to go put more fuel on it. And that takes a while. Plus uh, we're kind of short staffed and, you know, all the airplanes are kind of leaving, you know, within a few hours of each other. So they're really busy right now. We'll, we'll get you that fuel truck as soon as we can. I said, oh, okay. So I look at my captain. I say, you know, I don't think we're going to be pushing off the gate early today or even on time because I have a sinking suspicion that this might take a while. And, you know, we agreed. And so finally the fuel truck shows up five minutes prior to departure time. So now the PAs have to be made. Oh, the captain took care of that. and. Uh, Sent some messages over to dispatch, uh, letting them know that, hey, it looks like we're going to be pushing off the gate a little late because of uh, the fuel truck situation. So, you know, finally we got that all squared away. Now we're 15 minutes past our original departure time and we're all ready to go and shut the door. And the tug, usually at that point, the tug driver communicates with the captain through the intercom, letting him know that. We're all secure below, ready for parking brake release, and ready to push when we have the clearance. Well, the headset wasn't working. Uh, he would click, 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 and he, we could not hear them. And we don't even know if they could hear us, but clearly, after a few minutes of annoying clicking on the headphones, they decided to see if they can get another pair of headphones or another wire jack. And whatever they did, they finally were able to communicate. And that's when the tug 
died. So what, what's going on? So they had managers come over. Now we have a, a team of, of ground personnel trying to figure out what's going on with this very large tug that's connected to the aircraft, but it just died. You know, there's plenty of fuel in it. The lights work on it, but it just won't start. So now they decided, well, we're going to get a tug from another gate on the other side of the airport and bring it over. The only downside is there was an airplane hooked up to that tug and they were getting ready to push. It was the flight that was supposed to leave 45 minutes after us. Well, it was 45 minutes after departure time, so we had to wait for them to get pushed off the gate and then get disconnected and then bring the tug over. So, mind you, we ended up pushing off the gate with this other tug an hour behind schedule. So there's so much frustration that goes on during a process like that. You know, you're, you're really doing your best to make sure that you're getting out when you're supposed to get out. You're, you know, doing everything that you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, to defend the ground personnel, they're doing their best to do every, their jobs. And it's frustrating when equipment's not working, equipment failure happens, and now you have all these issues that are popping up one after another in succession, and your hands are kind of tied. You know, what can you do? So we all kind of make the best of it, and then we move forward, which is what we did. So it was a very, very long night. We, we got up to altitude, uh, no weather to deal with, and just the regular position reports. We made it all the way back into L.A., with really no issue. And we weren't able to really make up much time because your, your plan to Mach number, you got to stay within that Mach number, especially when you're over the water because you're not in constant radar contact, you're not in constant radio contact. So, you know, you're supposed to cross over those fixes, as I mentioned in a previous episode, talking about transatlantic crossings or trans-Pacific crossings. Um, so we, uh, we were able to get into the gate about 45 minutes behind schedule. So it was not too bad. We, we made up a little bit of time. Now, after we landed, you know, you're, it's 7 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning. It's an hour, almost an hour behind when you're supposed to be there. You just crossed over during your wackle. There's a new term, wackle. A wackle is window of circadian low. So the wackle is defined as a period of maximum sleepiness that occurs between 0200 and 0600 during a physiological night. So anytime you are awake during what your body's clock thinks is the wackle period, you doesn't matter how much sleep you had, you're going to be tired. Now, there's a difference between being tired and fatigued and and we'll kind of dive into fatigue in a later episode. So anytime you are awake during what your body's clock thinks is the wackle period, you doesn't matter how much sleep you had, you're going to be tired. Now, there's a difference between being tired and fatigued, and uh, you're tired, okay? And so any kind of delay, any kind of non-normal operation is going to really take a lot out of you because there's a lot of concentration going on. So we land at LA, we got onto the ramp area, we're ready to park the airplane. There's actually another air, aircraft uh, deeper in the ramp that was just pushed off the gate waiting for us to park so that they in turn can then taxi out and go for their flight. And so we're there and someone left a vehicle in our 
zone where it needs to be clear in our park zone, right? So we're using hand signals to the rampers down on the ground going, hey, pointing over to that vehicle saying that that vehicle needs to move. It's over the line. And they figured it out and they go in the vehicle. Usually people leave the keys, you know, in the vehicle. So if you're not there, anybody can move it, you know, because you're in a secure area of the airport on the ramp area. Well, there was no key in this vehicle. So now operations is calling us going, what's going on? Why aren't you parking at the gate? You're holding up the show here. And so we explain now there's a vehicle, it's over the line, you know, we got to make sure that vehicle gets moved. Oh, okay, sure, no problem. So they made whatever phone calls. Here comes someone running out of an office down there, and they moved the vehicle another five feet. Now everything was good. We parked at the gate, a little frustrated from the delay that we uh, encountered. But, you know, at the end of the trip, uh, we, we said our goodbyes and head out to the employee lot. Now I got to the car. And I knew that, you know, even though I had plenty of rest the, the day before and the night before that, and, you know, I was in my best ability fit for duty, which is another term we'll talk about later as well. But uh, even though all the things I did were right, it just, it was just a long trip. And I ended up doing what I now learned a lot of us do that do these uh, red eyes on the backside of the trip is I just jumped in the car, cracked the windows down in the employee lot, pulled the blanket over my head and fell asleep for a few hours. Cause there was no way I was going to get behind the wheel of a car that tired because I just, I know it. if, uh, if I go down, it's not going to be in an airplane. It's going to be because I, you know, fell asleep at a car doing something stupid or, you know, that's just not, I'm not going to ever allow that to happen. So, so I took a couple hours of sleep and then hit the road and made it home without incident. A wonderful trip, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of weather, but this is what the life of an aviator is. It's not all glamorous. It's not all, you know, sunshine and rainbows the whole time. We have to deal with a lot of stuff. And even though this trip really was nothing major to contend with and we're trained to handle all these situations, Still, it's very tiring, and this is the nitty-gritty of what we do. So I know I said that I talk about fatigue in a later episode, but I, when I got back to the car, I was fatigued. I was too tired to go on and do whatever duties I was going to do, which in this situation was drive a car. So, you know, every airline has a little bit different definition, but it all pretty much, the verbiage is very close to what the FAA uh, Part 117 definition of fatigue is, which is any physiological state of reduced mental or physical performance capability resulting from a lack of sleep or increased physical activity that could reduce a flight deck crew member's alertness and ability to safely operate an aircraft or perform safety-related duties. So you can't be fatigued and fly. And I've known aviators. I've even been in a scenario or two in my past where I was absolutely maybe not fatigued right at the moment when I called in fatigue to crew scheduling and was removed from flying. But I knew that within the time that I was flying, I might have been, been good at that moment, but I knew that like in an hour or an hour and a half, 
with as much as I did for the day or as, as whatever interrupted rest I had, I knew I'd be too tired to do my job safely, alert, and able to perform at the best of my ability. So you got to be responsible and you just, you just have to do it. You just have to call in fatigue, fill out the report that you're, you're required to fill out. You know, it gets sent to the FAA and they, they look at it, you know, and the company gets the report and they look at it. And, you know, some airlines will give you pay credit when you call in fatigued. Uh, if they investigate and they determine, yeah, anybody in your scenario would have been fatigued, it wasn't anything you did wrong, then, you know, they'll, they'll still pay you. They'll just remove you from the flying. Other airlines, other operators, they just remove you from the flying. No harm, no foul. Uh, but you'll be deducted the uh, flying that you lost from your pay at the end of the month. Um, and, and that kind of sucks, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, if anything were to happen and, and they say, well, you were too tired to continue, why'd you continue? Then it's on you, you know? Uh, so you, in order to be fit for duty, you got to make sure you're not fatigued. And that's why we signed fit for duty prior to every single flight. I love a good aviation story just as much as the next guy. Over the years, i found that when telling a good tale from the flight line, it's always best received if it is told in the first person. With that said, the stories within this podcast may or may not have happened to myself or to any of my guests. Furthermore, they may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. This is from the flight line. So not long ago, I was taking an airplane, airborne, and after we rotated just about 500 feet off the ground, I'm looking straight ahead at my PFD and ND, and we're talking the primary flight display, okay, and the navigation display. There are two computer monitors that are right there in front of you in the cockpit. And this is giving you all your heading and, and altitude reference system information and all your navigation information as well. And it's just a lot of information concentrated in a particular area. So all you GA guys out there, you know, you've got the, uh, the six pack, if you're flying, you know, one of the traditional uh, instrumentation aircraft and you have your scan. Okay. And so you'll learn a lot about perfecting your scan especially if you're an IFR student or IFR rated. You know, you, you really learn to scan not just your six-pack of instruments, but the, the whole cockpit periodically, right? And you got to trust your instruments. Well, as you get into more advanced aircraft, and or if you're into the more modern GA aircraft and you're dealing with G1000s and whatnot, so you see a digital display that has a plethora of information on it. And sometimes, especially at the beginning of an aviator's career, this information can be very overwhelming. However, when you know, you're, you've got the couple thousand hours on a particular airplane, you're flying uh, for an airline carrier, and you've had the training, you know, all that information all kind of correlates into uh, a system or a scan. So, there we were, rotating 500 feet, and a, a dark object you know, comes through my peripheral, and it gets my attention. I immediately look up, and before I even can focus on what it is, I hear it. 
you know, it's the big thump. And Captain looked over at me. He's like, what, what was that? I'm like, dude, I think we just hit a bird. And I look over immediately to the engine instrumentation uh, on the engine uh, warning display, you know. And so I'm looking over there. Everything looks good. And, you know, pressurization's good. So I'm like, well, I, I suspect we hit a bird. We'll just go ahead and continue. And the captain's, agree. yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, good. Because it's his call or her call. So, you know, as is required, we make the mandatory radio call and let the tower know, yeah, we have a suspected bird strike. Tower says, okay, you require any assistance now? Um, I think we're good. Uh, everything seems normal. We're going to go ahead and continue. Okay. So why did I say that or why did he say that? The suspected bird strike and not, oh, we hit a bird. Because you don't know what you hit, first of all. I mean, it could have been a bird, a bat, whatever. But it could have been a really big bug. You know, those exist. Uh, you know, especially flying in the south, you get some pretty big June bugs that, that leave just as much damage as a small bird. Uh, but by using the word suspected bird strike, uh, you know, then when you get to your destination... Uh, and you, you know, obviously you've let maintenance know, you've logged it in your, your maintenance logbook, and they come out, and they're going to want to know all kinds of stuff, okay? So if you've never gone through one before, I've, I've gone through at least a dozen in my career, uh, they're going to want to know flaps up or flaps down, gear up or gear down, you know, what speed, what, you know, where were you from in reference to the airport and elevation and all this stuff. And then you're going to have to fill out a NASA bird strike report as long uh, along with uh, your company's mandatory reports. Usually it's just a captain that fills that out. Um, it just depends on your carrier's procedures. Uh, at Legacy, I believe it's only the captain, but I'm not quite sure. But So, you know, you hit the bird, you fill out the forms, just be prepared. You know, any time a non-normal event happens, you, you can see me scribbling away when time permits uh, all the information, altitude, speed. Uh, because maintenance has to do their inspection, and if the flaps were up and the gear was up, that makes their inspection pretty easy. But if you don't know, you don't remember, or uh, the flaps were down or gear was down, now they have to extend the flaps, and they have to check in the gear wells, and there's just a lot more uh, detail that they need to do. And depending on where the, the suspected bird hit, uh, if it's in line with the engines, now they have to check the engine's detail before they can go on. And these inspections sometimes can take, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Other times they could take hours. So unfortunately, you know, you get near an airport, you have big open spaces with lots of green grass and fields where there's a lot of bugs flying around and you're going to have birds and the birds, you know, fly across the runway all the time, usually in flocks and not a good thing. And we all know what happens when a big bird, uh, gets caught up in an engine, uh, it could be relatively disastrous. So uh, bird strikes happen. Don't be afraid to, to report them or write them up. Uh, just remember, help yourself out and put suspected bird strike because if maintenance comes out and then looks around the airplane and doesn't see anything, then it's like, well, no bird strike evidence found, right? And it's a done deal. But if the wording is a little different, then... Now this inspection is going to take a lot longer because now 
we're gonna have to figure out okay well where did it hit I can remember a time I was uh, flying for the regional while I was still in FO, and I'm flying with this just wonderful, wonderful captain. Uh, he and I got along so well. He's a former military high-ranking individual who was retired from the military and flying for the airline for many years, a few decades at that. And really good personality, great, great stories. Some of the best stories I've ever heard came from Captain Doug. And uh, I can remember one time we were taking off in Tucson. And Captain Doug would always turn the radar on as soon as we got lined up on the runway. And a couple of times I asked him, I said, you know, why are you doing that, Doug? What, what, what's the deal? It's clear in a million. What, why would you turn the radar on? He says, oh, well, you know, studies have shown that if you turn the radar on when you're lined up on the runway, the birds can sense the radar return and they'll fly out of your way. And he goes, I've never hit a bird since I started doing that. And I looked at him and I was like, really? You, you, does that work? I've never heard anything about that. He goes, oh, well, you know, it's working for me. So I'm like, okay, you know, no big deal. I hadn't questioned it again. Well, you know, here we were lined up in Tucson on a beautiful morning in uh, the fall. And he had the radar on. And they cleared us for takeoff. So he said, okay, your aircraft, all right, my aircraft, and set the power, and, and off we were. And we're cruising along down the runway, getting ready to rotate. And just before V1, a few birds decided to do some kamikaze attempt at the aircraft. One went high, one went low. The one that went low, you know, barely avoided the aircraft. The one that went high didn't quite get so lucky. Ended up hitting what the uh, that aircraft called the first officer's tat probe, which was just in front of the first officer's forward view window, and it split the bird in half, created a V pattern on the window of just remains of the bird, and the captain, you know, we both kind of like, oh crap, you know, and it's startling. It's very startling. You know, but we continued on with our calls, you know, V1 rotate, let's go. And so, you know, I looked at the engine parameters, everything looked okay. I said, well, everything seems to be okay. The airplane's handling fine. I'm just going to go ahead and continue. The engines look good. So, of course, you know, make the report with the tower controller, you're requiring assistance. No, it looks like it's, uh, you know, we, we're going to be fine. Just the bird didn't make it, you know. So, so we get up, we're climbing out, and he just can't contain himself. He got so excited. He goes, good kill, good kill. <laughs> And we, we laughed about it a little bit. Oh, that poor bird, you know, but, uh, you know, it was just, it was such a, a, just a nasty little thing that happened. And so we get to cruise and we're kind of quiet for a minute. And I look over at him and I'm like, Doug, yeah. So you had the radar on, right? Yeah. So I guess, uh, I guess that's bullshit, right? He goes, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> So I don't think he turned the radar on for no reason anymore. <laughs> yeah, it didn't seem to uh, make those birds move out of the way at all. So, but yeah, a little messy. And when we uh, taxied into the gate, 
uh, once we reached our destination, which was Los Angeles, uh, you know, we had called ahead and said, yeah, we had a bird. It's pretty messy and you're going to need to have maintenance come out and, you know, at minimum clean it up and do the inspection. Yeah. So maintenance was, uh, standing by at the jet bridge as we were getting ready to park the aircraft and they're all standing at, looking at us and it must've looked really bad from the outside of the airplane. From the inside of the airplane, it just, you know, it looked like a bird strike. What can I tell you? Uh, not a big bird, obviously, but a, one that made a mess. And uh, from, from the outside of the airplane, <laughs> it's just like they're shaking their head. And as soon as they could, they came up the jet bridge and came in the cockpit. And they're like, dude, it's like you ran over a deer. What the hell? It was a really bad. It was like a pretty messy sight, you know. But yeah, that's when I learned. That was my first bird strike in, in a jet and that's when i learned how much paperwork was involved because doug and i actually sat down together uh in the crew room afterwards and and we just kind of filled everything out and that was pretty amazing how much detail they want to know everything temperature was the was uh, birds in the vicinity uh, noted in the uh in the metar or the atis you know all this information you know and you're like shit i don't know i don't remember any of this stuff so yeah is more information than you could ever recall just a lot of stuff, but yeah, be careful out there. You know, birds happen. It, it's just a hundreds of birds get hit every single day all over the world, you know, with every takeoff that happens. And, uh, you know, everybody does their best. Even some airports have these, uh, sound cannons that they have around the airport. And, and during certain times of the year when the birds are, uh, you know, migrating and, and they try to keep them off airport property, especially out of the uh, runway center lines, uh, and they have these uh, cannons that they can operate from the tower, and they're just basically compressed air that they release out of a, a cannon tube that makes a big bang, and the birds get scared away. Uh, other airports use uh, trained falcons. Uh, these are quite common. You can see these a lot in the Midwest, uh, you know, falcons uh, that have, you know, tags on them and everything, and they're just hanging out. Uh, by the airport, and they know not to uh, get in the way of the aircraft. They see it coming because they're they're trained birds, um, and they try to keep the smaller birds away. Um, and I need to do a little bit of a research, but I do remember that some airports even have trained dogs. I remember seeing an article about a collie who had like these little goggles on, and I forget what airport it was, somewhere in Michigan, maybe somewhere. Um, and he would run around the airport, knew not to, you know, get on the runway, especially when air, aircraft were around, but he would scare away the birds. He was keeping people safe, keeping people alive. So wonderful, wonderful way to keep the birds away from the airport. Just remembered uh, another story I wanted to share with you. Uh, this happened to uh, a friend of mine uh, years back, uh, dare I say, probably a decade or more. But uh, hanging out in the crew room in Chicago at the time, and he comes in. He was a, a captain and a check airman for the company I was working for at the time. And he sits down, and there's a, a few of us sitting there in the crew room at a table talking, and he goes, you guys are never going to believe what just happened, man. And so he sits down and tells his story. And he says, listen, man, I had to commute in from Detroit and, you know, our, our flight was full and I had a jump seater. So I ended up taking, uh, you know, a competitor, another carrier over here. And said carrier, you know, I had to sit in the jump seat 
and it was a CRJ type airplane, had to sit in the jump seat. And he goes, usually I, I don't like sitting up there, but you know, I had to get to work and, uh, you're not going to believe this. And, and so we're like, okay, you know, we're biting. Sure. What's going on? And he goes, well, so I'm in the jump seat and, you know, today there's you know, embedded thunderstorms over South Bend and, you know, the arrivals have been all jacked up and we're an IMC over the lake. And I look over and I notice that the captain, she doesn't have the radar on and she's flying the airplane. Meanwhile, her FOs lean back all the way in his seats. The pedals are all the way full forward. He can't even reach those. And, you know, he's playing Angry Birds on his tablet. You know, he's in flight playing Angry Birds. You know, you can't do that. I mean, for one, it's prohibited by, by not just the company, but by the FAA. Um, so, you know, he's sitting there, he's trying to mind his own business. You know, it's the captain's boat, the, the captain that was flying. So it was her responsibility to say something if she had a problem with that, which she should have. Uh, but she didn't. And, uh, you know, here they are in IMC and some moderate turbulence going on. And he says, Captain, uh, sorry, I hope mind me asking, why don't you have the radar on? And she goes, oh, this, yeah, the radar sucks on this airplane. He goes, is it not working? And she goes, no, no, it works. But, you know, these, this radar, it's terrible. It doesn't even work really well. So I just leave it off. You know, if there's a problem, ATC is looking out. They'll, they'll tell us, you know, to take a vector or something. And the captain, wait, what? What? You know, he's like, are you are you kidding me? He's like, no. She goes, hey, no, no. ATC's looking out. He goes, oh no. Could, please, could you just do this for me? Could you just turn the radar on? I know, you know. He goes, I'm I'm actually typed in CRJ as well. And I, can you just turn it on for me if you don't mind? She goes, fine. So she turns it on, and she's like, oh shit, there's some there's some weather ahead. You know, maybe let's get deviations left or right or whatnot. And so the flight continues, gets into Chicago, and when they get to the gate, the, the, the captain that was working for our company, the one that was in the jump seat, he says, uh, normally I get up out of my seat right away, and as soon as there's an opportunity, I get out of the cockpit, and I, you know, I'll go on my way, thank him for the ride, and, and you know, get to work. But he goes, I just, I couldn't not say anything. I just, this was just too bad. It was too egregious of, a, of a, the audacity to not, turn on a radar system that was working functionally fine and you're in you're an IMC with embedded thunderstorms in the area I mean so he gave them some advice in a very colorful way he says listen uh captain I hope you don't mind me saying so but take it from me you got you know 20 years of aviation behind me he goes no one's looking out for you okay not ATC not your dispatcher not your not your FO no one you're on your own out here. You, it's up to you. It's your responsibility. It's your signature on the paperwork. It's your responsibility. If anything were to happen, you're the one in front of the committee. And he said, always protect yourself. Protect your crew. Protect your passengers. It's, it's that easy. He goes, I don't care if you think it sucks or not. You know, you've got to use the tools that are given to you. There's no excuse. And then he turns to the FO and he goes, and you. And the FO's like, what? Uh, he's like, you know, seriously, you're, you got your pedals all the way forward, your seats all the way back. What if something happened to her, you know, during the landing sequence or during takeoff sequence or even during flight? And someone has to assume control of the aircraft, right? First three rules of aviation, aviate, navigate, communicate. Aviate's number one for a reason. He goes, you need to be with, at the ready. 
you know, throughout the process, you're backing her up. You're not backing her up if you're playing freaking Angry Birds on your tablet, not paying attention during flight. And then during the critical phase of flight below 10,000 feet, you're got your seat all the way back and you can't even reach the pedals. What if something were to happen? It's your life too, man. He's like, you know, you guys do what you want. And, you know, I hope you don't take too much offense to this, but I just had to get this off my chest because what I saw was just not cool. So they kind of like scoffed at him and, you know, went on his way, but he came in and he's like, you're not going to believe these guys. So he told us the story. What's the moral? The moral is, you know, use the tools that you have to the best of your ability, regardless of your opinion of the quality of those tools, because in the end, that bit of information could be the missing piece to make a safe course of action or make a good decision. So, in The Struggle Is Real, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how to recover from a trip. Now, some of us are very lucky as aviators. We, you know, at at an airline, we get to fly these trips that are on a relatively consistent schedule. And this is like the biggest transition for me was, you know, years ago when I came to Legacy Airlines, uh, coming from the regional airlines. Now, at the regional, we flew everywhere. I mean, in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, we were pretty much everywhere. There was no real region to it, you know, north of the country, south, and, and uh, even into Central America. So there was a little bit of international flying to be had, but most of it was domestic, and the purpose of us was to feed the passengers to the hubs so that they can make their connections to get to their destination, either be mainline or through a connection. So we primarily flew from around 6 a.m. until 11 p.m. normally. I mean, there were exceptions to that, of course, but for the most part, if your trips were early, you pretty much did the whole week early trips, two, three, four lakes a day, you know, starting at five, six in the morning, and then you would be ending by, you know, four or five in the afternoon. So when you got to your overnight, you had time to go and get a meal with your crew, go for a run, get a workout in, whatever it was. And if you're doing more of late stuff, then, you know, you wouldn't show up to the airport till two or three o'clock in the afternoon and you'd be flying till midnight. And this was usually consistent, not just for the sequence, but sometimes if you were bid a whole month that way, you were consistent throughout. So really, you rarely ever, unless you took an unforecasted delay for whatever reason, you never really touched your wackle, which now we know our window of circadian low, right? So another thing about that was that you had a lot of opportunity to have social time while you're on your layover with your crew. So whenever you had a crew that actually wanted to get together and you didn't have a crew that was, you know, they were what we call slam clickers. Now, what's a slam clicker? Uh, slam kicker is a crew member that, or an entire crew, that says, oh, you know, I get to my layover and I'm tired or I really have business to do or, or uh, whatever, for whatever reason. Uh, they just slam and click the door lock on their door and they stay in their hotel room for however long the layover is and then they come out when it's time to go. And that's their prerogative. It's totally fine. 
it just it doesn't make for a very social or positive social experience. And you know, I'm a pretty social guy, so I like to kind of hang out or at least a little bit, you know, get to know my my crew members and and make friends and you know, hang out. So that was a, the good side, the positive side of that type of flying. And as I got to the to legacy carrier, and especially being based on the West Coast, you know, the West Coast is kind of a different bag altogether. However, now with the legacy carrier, we are the ones doing this wackle flying or this backside of the clock flying. So, you know, you're out of LA, I think it's some really high amount, something like 70 to 80% of all the flying, at least on the Airbus out of LA, has a red eye in it at one point, either uh, in the middle of the trip, at the end of the trip, whatever. And the ones that don't have that are usually relatively senior trips, obviously, because, you know, who wants to fly a red eye if you don't have to? So those trips, especially the ones that finish with a red eye, are relatively fatiguing, okay? Not just tiring, but they're fatiguing. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I did get in the habit of packing a sleeping bag or a blanket or a pillow in my vehicle uh, before I hit the road because, uh, you know, that, that's just, I think, the responsible thing to do. But it doesn't end there. You take it home with you. So uh, as I did this past week, I slept a couple hours in the lot and uh, thankfully, it was you know a nice, cool morning at the beach there in LA, and uh, made it home. Got cleaned up, unpacked my bag, and uh, I laid down again because it just I have accumulated so much sleep debt at that point where I wanted to get caught up as soon as possible. And sometimes that's easy to do, and sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you try; you just you can't fall asleep. So, you know, in this scenario, I was just so tired that after I got cleaned up, I just laid back down and I slept another three hours in the middle of the day. And it's hard when you're come home, you've been gone a few days and the family wants to get going and do stuff together. You've been gone, so they want to spend time with you and you, you just can't, you can't do that. You have to catch up on your rest. Otherwise you're, wor- you're going to be worthless regardless, but at least you're not falling over on yourself. So that's what I did. I slept a couple more hours. And then by the time I, I got up, I realized, okay, well, let's, let's go do something before it gets dark. And so we did end up having some family time together, but obviously it, it took me over half of a day after I got home just to recover. And these recovery periods, when you're doing uh, the flying that I mentioned earlier, where it's consistent, it's uh, you know during daylight hours for the most part, mostly mornings, mostly evenings, and then you get home after a commute or whatever, you know at least you're kind of on the same clock, even if it's different time zones, you're on the same clock. So when you get home, you can just get into it, you know you can get cleaned up and you can just go. But when you're doing these you know backside of the clock flying, you, you lose out, not just that you're more fatigued and it's harder on the body and on the mind but when you get home it's harder on the family as well because now you it takes you longer to bounce back from your trip so here's the the truth you know the glamour of of being an airline pilot you're gonna spend a lot of time recuperating especially if you're doing west coast flying. 
I have one day off this this week between trips. I, I have a trip that I picked up tomorrow. So today's my one day off. Okay, so yesterday I spent recuperating. Today I had a day off. So of course, in my one day off, I had to try to fit in both family time and errands to run and, you know, checkbooks to balance and bills to pay and all the, the good stuff that we do, right? So today was my FAA medical day. So I had made appointment earlier in the week and I have a really good uh, FAA medical guy that's local. And so I told the family, hey, let's all go there. I'll drop you guys off. You guys can go shopping or something while I'm doing my medical. And then after that, we can go have lunch together. And that's exactly what we did. So the FA medical, first class medical for all ATP pilots, not a big deal. I've been doing it for over 20 years now. And uh, the usual examinations, you know, he gave me a thumbs up, a good bill of health. Uh, you can see here now that I'm, you know, climbing up into my 40s, which is still young, but uh, the eye exam part, I used to be able to read the fine print on the bottom of the chart, M-A-D-E-I-N-C-H-I-N-A. Uh, and we'd always get a chuckle on that. And uh, now it's like, well, the FA requires you to read at least line four, five, and six. Which line can you read without correction? Like, oh, I guess I can read line four. <laughs> so read it to him. He's like, oh, you're fine. He goes, uh, yeah, you know, because I have like readers that I use, you know, as he goes, well, it's strange that you don't have readers, you know, after age 40, you know, most of the pilots have readers at least, you know, if you have really good distance vision, then your nearsighted vision usually craps out on you earlier. Um, or if your near vision is not good, uh, or, or your near vision is really good, then your long distance, you know, craps out early. And he goes, usually it's one or the other. And it's rare that you're over 40 and you don't need any correction at all. So, you know, that was a good thing to not have any restrictions on my FA medical. And, you know, of course, over the age of 40, once a year, you need to have EKG done as well. So, of course, he prints that little EKG graph out, looks at it, goes, oh, this is beautiful. This is, you should frame this. Like, always the joke, right? So <laughs> I was there and I, I took care of that. And I was reminded of a story that my first time getting my first class medical. So, you know, you, you decide you want to be a pilot. First thing you do is you go uh, to a flight school and talk about what needs to be done, and they're going to send you out right away. They're gonna go, Before your first lesson, you need to go out and get a student pilot license and a third class medical. It's the same thing. So they'll give you a list of doctors in the area that are FAA medical examiners, and you would go out and you would, you know, go into the office, you'd fill out the form, and uh, pay the, the examiner, and they'll do your physical. They make sure that you know, you're, everything's good. You pass all the requirements uh, that the FAA has on being a pilot for a third class. Now, third class is the, one of the lower classifications, or if not the lowest classification. And the back of the medical certificate is also your student pilot license, which is contingent upon your instructor's um, sign-off as well. So. That's what I had when I first started flying, when I decided to try this out at first as a hobby, but later on as a career. So after I got my private pilot license, my, my medical was still good for you know, a little bit longer. And I decided I was going to take the plunge and make the change and go to a flight school 
and do this as a career. So I got pretty serious with it pretty quick. And so I had to go back to my medical examiner because one of the requirements of this flight school was you have to get your first class medical right away, even though it's not required for flight training. Because if there's a problem, you don't want to spend hundred dollars to $130,000 to learn how to be an airline pilot uh, and then find out that, well, you can pass your first or second class medical, but you can't pass your first, or I'm sorry, your third or your second, but you can't pass your first. So that, that could be a problem. So just going, you know, get the highest medical, the first class medical right away. And that's what I did. So I went into the examiner's office there. I was in Albuquerque at the time. And he looked at me and goes, why are you getting your first class medical? Are you have a job somewhere that you're going to, you're still private pilot, right? I was like, yeah, I am, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and uh, make this a career. And he looks at me and he goes, are you kidding me? Are you, do you need to have your head examined? I'm like, what? He goes, you know, you got a really good job. And, and I did. At the time, I had a very good job. I was in a management position at one of the world's uh, biggest box retailers. And I was making good money. I was young. I was in my 20s. I owned a house. I mean, it's just, life was good. I was living in a place where I could afford to live uh, with the salary that uh, lower management at this retail company uh, made. And so he goes, man, you, you're going to do this? It's like, And this is right after 9-11 happened. So he's like, you got to be nuts. He goes, you know it was bad enough with deregulation. And now, you know, this crap going on with 9-11, he goes, and you want to be an airline pilot? And so, yeah, yeah I, I do. It's my dream. I want to follow my dream. No, nobody was going to you know, discourage me from that. And so even my medical examiner's like, oh, I don't know, but uh, fine, I guess so. You know, it's not like you're, you know, but you have a decision. You can, you could do anything else. You know, why don't you do something else? And I'm like, no, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so he gave me a hard time. My very first time getting a first class medical and my own doctor was giving me a hard time. Can you believe that? That's nuts. Well, thank you so much everyone for listening. Um, I have some exciting news on the next Squawk Ident. We are doing our best to coordinate and bring to you an interview, my very first interview, from an individual who I've known over 15 years. And he is a fellow aviator that has taken a little bit different journey than I have and than most people have. Uh, He's had so much happen to him on this trek of becoming a pilot and becoming an aviator for a career uh, that his story is just amazing and I just am looking so forward to having him on the show and having him tell his story so tune in next week we'll have a great interview for you I'd also like to just take a moment and thank all of you listeners out there that have been supporting Squawk Ident and AviatorTony.com this journey has really taken me to a great happy place where I can just talk about my experiences, tell some stories, and just get it out there. And I really do appreciate all the feedback, all of the support that I've received. And don't forget, 
make sure you subscribe and you can join the social media as well. Yeah, for all you Facebook users out there, don't forget to look up Squawk Ident Podcast and Instagram as well, Squawk Ident Podcast. We're out there. Make sure you like, follow, and subscribe. In closing, I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other.